Heavenly Father, our Father in heaven, we hallow your name, we exalt your name, we magnify you. And we pray this morning, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as perfectly as it's done in heaven. And when we pray that, we are praying this, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Only you, the the judge of all the earth, can make these things right, can bring about a new heaven and a new earth. We confess, Lord, we're powerless to do that. But we do pray, even as we've just sung, give us the strength, O Lord, and the courage to speak your gospel, that our relational evangelism would always lead to actual evangelism, to the speaking, the proclaiming of the gospel, calling those around us to repent and to believe, because, Lord, your kingdom is at hand. So, Lord, we exalt you, and now in the hearing of your word, strengthen our faith, uh, straighten the the knees that are bent, uh, straighten us up, Lord, and give us strength, and encourage us through your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. All right. Take your Bibles, and let's head over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we have had such a wonderful time in this section we've been in and uh, it is going to finish off in the way that I know Luke has already demonstrated as a pattern. He loves to illustrate the truth that he's been teaching. And so we find ourselves in that last section beginning in verse 36 of Luke's gospel and headed down to the end of the chapter. And of course Luke is helping us understand that every time the Lord Jesus Christ came in contact with the leaders of the religious establishment, with the Jewish leaders of Israel. Every time he came in contact with them, the hostility level went up another notch. And it's no wonder, because as Jesus taught and ministered to the masses, on the one hand, he was gentle and compassionate in his interaction with those whose lives were broken down by sin. He reached out in extraordinary patience and gentleness and gospel compassion to those whose lives were shattered, who lived with guilt, who had no hope, and, and who were blind and didn't particularly think anything of themselves at all. They just were lost in a sea of pagan culture like those that we see today. On the other hand, Jesus had severe rebukes consistently for those who lived as though they had no sin or they had nothing to confess or they had no grasp of their weakness, had no interest in admitting or acknowledging their need. He was always sifting the crowds the Lord was. He was always exposing whose heart was softening toward the need for a Savior and always exposing those whose hearts were hardening because they were proud and stubborn. You recall from last week that Jesus had just blatantly declared that the present leaders of Israel were like self-absorbed juveniles. They were like little children in the marketplace. They object to everything that doesn't satisfy their petty little self-indulgence. And they took offense at Jesus for anything and everything, just to silence him, just to keep from having to deal with 
his person, his character, his work, his power, his message, his claims. They would make any excuse to not have to deal with the truth. It didn't matter what he taught. It didn't matter the obvious power behind his miracles. It didn't matter the irrefutable holiness of life that he lived. And right on the heels of that rebuke in verse 31 to 34, where he told them they were like petty juveniles, right on the heels of that, Matthew's gospel, it's not recorded in Luke, but Matthew's gospel records in chapter 11 that Jesus began, right after he said wisdom is vindicated by all her children, he began then to pronounce a curse on some of the cities to which he had gone and done miracles and taught, and they were so stubborn in their unbelief. Matthew 11 mentions that he pronounced a curse on Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. He said there are some Old Testament cities so wicked that they would be judged, no doubt, but you are going to have it worse in the judgment, he said to Chorazin. You are going to have it worse in the judgment, Bethsaida and Capernaum, because all these miracles and messages from the Messiah himself have been done in you, and yet you would not turn from your sin. So then, what does Luke do in the text before us? Well, he gives us a living illustration, closes out this section with this vivid and graphic illustration of how one person is given the truth and open, and their eyes are opened, and another person is blinded from the truth and left in that blindness. One broken life, anxiously clinging to their Savior. And in the same room, in the very same room, you have someone clutching their earthly trophies, and they won't let go. We saw at the beginning of chapter 7 the vindication of John the Baptist's ministry of calling men to repentance. That was vindicated by God. That was a vindication of God's wise plan to send John the Baptist to preach repentance and prepare hearts. We saw then the vindication of mercy as people came to Christ. Gentiles, country people, hillside people, people with a mess of trouble and sin in their life. The gospel was reaching even them. It wasn't going through Jerusalem down to the religious elite. And then we saw the vindication of pronouncements of judgment against the proud. The Pharisees rejected God's purpose for them, verses 30 down to 35. They rejected God's purpose for them because they wouldn't be baptized by John's baptism. I mean, the guy came in the normal clothing and speech of a prophet, and they said, nah, we're not interested in that. You're insane. They would not come and say, I'm guilty of anything. And if you are pointing to a Messiah and he says that we must believe in him, then why doesn't he recognize our righteousness? If he is the Messiah, why doesn't he recognize how great we are, how pious and holy we've lived our lives? How come he doesn't recognize that we are the ones to whom the nation should look to? And so the vindication of God's judgment upon them is they're left in their sin and they reject God's purpose for them. They don't repent. They won't. 
And so Luke, just in fine fashion, carries us into this final vindication. It's a vindication of faith. That salvation is by faith, not by your own righteousness. It's a vindication of faith through an act of worship, through a response that is so opposite of the Pharisees. Follow along as I read. Verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him and that she is a sinner. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. He gave me no water for my feet, but she's wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So there it is. There's the illustration of what this entire chapter has continued to unearth for us. Luke includes this story while the other Gospels leave it out. And it's interesting the way Luke is connecting some dots for us. Notice in verse 36 the word dine. Uh, the Pharisee was requesting that he dine with him. In the original Greek language, it's the same word used back in verse 33 and verse 34. Notice what it says there. John the Baptist came eating and eating no bread. There is the word dine. Same exact word. He came Dining on no bread and drinking no wine. Verse 34, the Son of Man has come dining and drinking. So you have Luke connecting the story with what was said previously by mere terminology. John the Baptist dined with no one, you say he's demon-possessed. I came dining with everyone, you say I'm defiled. And then this, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And... 
What you have here is, um, and, and I don't want you to be mistaken, what you have here is the smug hosting of Jesus by a, a phony. This is a charade. It may be a customary respectful one, but nonetheless, I believe it will bear itself out that this is nothing more than a smug Pharisee hosting Jesus as, as a charade. It's a, a sham. Notice, one of the Pharisees was requesting to dine with him. And you're thinking in your mind, wait, what? What? We just heard how the Pharisees had accused Jesus of being defiled because he would dine with outcasts and tax collectors. The worldly people, the outcasts, and the sinful people. Now, Jesus never sinned. He could never be legitimately accused of a single sinful act or deed or thought or motive. No one could legitimately accuse him of any of those things. But because he would have meals with anyone who would listen to him, including avowed pagans, the religious elite would then slander him and say he's defiled for doing that. And now the hypocrisy of this invitation just begins to blow your mind. You're inviting Jesus, whom you say is defiled, to come and dine with you. The Pharisees would never dine with the tax collectors. They would never dine with the underbelly of society, the sin sinful, because they had the fear that they would defile their own personal righteousness. Their own holiness and piety would be defiled if they did that. In fact, you remember in our study of chapter 5, just for your notes, verse 29 and following, do you remember what was happening? Levi, the tax collector, was saved, right? Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew came and followed him. And what did Matthew do? He gathered all of his pagan buddies from the underbelly of society, the thugs, the thieves, the violent criminals, and even the harlots. He gathered them for a party and invited Jesus to come and share the testimony of salvation with them. You know what the Pharisees said? Why do your disciples spend time with in meals with these sinful people and these outcasts. I just find that ironic. That now, suddenly, the rabbis in town, you don't really know where the town is that this happened. Could be Capernaum. Certainly nearby on the northern coast of Galilee area, but we don't really know. Suddenly, he's in town. He's a visiting rabbi, and the local official Pharisee who, who heads up the spiritual dy dynamics of the town, the city... He invites Jesus. And it's apparently to appear respectful to this visiting rabbi. And so he says, I'm going to host a dinner. But why else would he risk being seen with Jesus if it wasn't a charade? Why else would he risk becoming defiled by someone he and the others already considered a sinner himself, a fraud? Do we not have any sound? It's off? Have you guys been trying to get my attention the whole time? Okay, let's start over. That's funny. I see it now. There's a sign. Please use pulpit mic. Wow. You guys have a lot of control. Way too much control. <laughs> So I have been, has anybody just missed the whole thing? Anyway, okay, I mean, they didn't, didn't used to have public address, so 
Hopefully I've got some lungs. So now you know. We are in Luke 7, for those of you who missed it. Here's the irony. He already thinks Jesus is a fraud because he believes Jesus has defiled himself for hanging out with sinners. Yet he, in some pretense, invites him to dine with him. Some commentators believe that this Pharisee had no hidden agenda, but it seems very, very clear. In fact, as we will soon see, though this Pharisee does offer to host Jesus as a distinguished guest, according to the custom of the day, he is anything but warm or welcoming as a host. The truth of the matter is, he really wants to get into a conversation with Jesus in that public setting, up close and personal, so that he can expose Jesus for the fraud that he thinks he is. And so it's a smug attempt to turn his nose up at Jesus and compare Jesus' obvious lack of holiness with the religious elite. People do this to Christians sometimes. They, uh, they hear about the truth of Jesus. They hear about the truth of Christ. They hear about a holy life. And they, all they want to do is find some way to show you to be a fraud. And in their religion, their false religion, these false teachers want to raise themselves up as those who are the truly righteous. This Pharisee is no different. He's thinking, well, if Jesus is a true prophet sent from God, I'd like to hear how he justifies such a claim, living the way he lives. Now, who is the Pharisee? Well, we don't know. His name is Simon. Luke calls him by his religious title. Jesus is recorded here in the text as calling him by name. His name is Simon. What is shocking is that it says in verse 36 that he requested Jesus to dine with him, and notice Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined. I mean, this is a compassionate visit. This is a patient visit. Despite the growing hostility of the Jewish leadership, Jesus graciously accepts the invitation. He was always perfectly respectful to the various customs and traditions of the day so long as they didn't violate Scripture in some way. It didn't bother Jesus to go along with somebody's rules. It didn't bother Jesus to go along with somebody's custom. It didn't bother him to reach out according to custom. This is exactly what Paul would tell the church of Corinth later on when he said, I'm all things to all people. He's not saying I violate scripture to speak the gospel. He's saying I curb anything in my life, including my own personal comforts and preferences. I would curb those to go into any environment to give the gospel. Jesus was very kind, very gracious, even to a group of men whom he knew hated him. He was always responsive. And he knew that in the providence of God, God was going to do things. His heavenly Father was going to move circumstances in the outworking of daily life. And he went wherever there were open doors for greater gospel influence and ministry. The text simply says he came in and he reclined. By the way, that is in the text because it's just sort of a way to put you in the room with them. It's the typical way that they describe the whole experience of having a meal together. History records that the, the custom of having these meals was to surround uh, the area where you were going to be with, uh, a, at the ground level table, to surround that area with cushions or pillows. The ancient 
uh, word in other literature would, be, would have been translated sometimes in the English couch. So they would put these pads and cushions and pillows down to create sort of a couch near the ground level table. And everyone would sort of settle into that spot in sort of a relaxed, laid down position. So you'd be kind of on your elbow or, or leaning back on the pillows or you're very close to the ground level uh, goods that were on the table. It was very, very relaxing. And it indicated that when a guest set that up or a host set that up for you, uh, this was a way of making your guests feel very, very comfortable. We have our own customs. This is the way they did it in their day. So there they are. The spread of food would have been outstanding. No self-respecting, even wealthy Pharisee would miss an opportunity to show off what he had. And so Simon would have put out some kind of show because the more wealthy you were as a Pharisee, the more blessed by God you were. And if you were blessed by God publicly, quote-unquote, that meant you were more holy and pleasing to him. So Simon would have put it on. Other guests, no doubt, are there, and they're anticipating some lively conversation. And the servants probably are, are quietly but certainly quickly attending to every need. And so from Simon's perspective, everything is perfect. A famous rabbi is in town. He is distinguished as a guest. Simon gets to reflect the honor back on himself. I have Jesus in my home. And I get to watch and wait for Jesus to make a fool of himself and vindicate the skepticism. And though it's ironic that the skeptical Simon invited Jesus to this meal, God has a way of orchestrating a dose of irony all his own. Because while Simon is hosting the dinner in his righteous home, see, Gentiles wouldn't be allowed in the home and sinners and defiled people wouldn't be allowed to come in. This is our righteous home. This is a dinner reserved only for the unpolluted. And so while Simon is hosting this unpolluted dinner, God sovereignly brings in a wretched, defiled, broken sinner. And she just crashes right into that unpolluted, quote-unquote, dinner chamber. So you see a smug teacher hosting a charade, and then in the middle of that, God brings a vile woman. And she is seeking a savior. Notice Verse 37, and behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she came. And you could stop there. God knows how to cut right through all the pretense. He knows how to force a spiritual reality to the surface. Behold is New Testament language for this is absolutely astonishing. Listen up, this will shock you. This is what happened. There are several reasons why this, this, this scene cannot be missed. She is a woman. That's the first thing that's shocking. Women didn't enter unless invited in that culture. And they were never part of an official meal with Jewish leaders. Never. Secondly, she is a sinner. By the way, it's unclear, as I said, what town this takes place in. But apparently the leaders of the city knew this woman. The town people, probably the general population, it's implied, knew this woman. And they were aware of her because she was a sinner. It's not a generic reference. Commentators often try to 
try to soften the description simply because the word sinner can, can be used commonly enough. But when it's used in various contexts, the picture comes into focus. And that's what you have here. Notice in verse 39, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. There is a clear indication that the issue here is defilement from her life, her lifestyle, the way she lives. She comes from the same crowd of people described by the Pharisees back in chapter 5, verse 30. This is Matthew's old band of violent criminals. These are the thieves and the prostitutes. We don't know if her sin, her immorality was, was paid for so that she was a paid prostitute. We don't know. It's probably the case, likely the case. It's interesting that that, that concept of thieves and thugs and tax collectors and prostitutes kind of go together in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 21, verse 32, it says there, Jesus said, John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him, but the tax gatherers, listen to this, and prostitutes did believe him. That's the actual word for prostitute, and yet tax gatherers and prostitutes kind of went together. The businesses went together. Everybody was on the take, and everybody was living an immoral life. That's this woman. She's well known in the city for having lived a sad wanton, immoral life. And it just is a tragedy when you see that. Whether she makes her living by it or not, we don't know. This is how she is viewed, and she's no doubt publicly branded as such. She is a hopelessly defiled and incurable woman of immorality so far as the public is concerned. How dare she come barging in here? Notice verse 37, when she learned that Jesus was there. <laughs> now she obviously had friends in low places. And um, perhaps there were some who'd heard Jesus teach and seen his miracles. Maybe she'd gone to a couple of sessions herself and Heard him speak in the distance. Up to that point, she was living with the heavy, torturous guilt. She'd not ever repented of such things in her life, living with the consequences on her conscience, the consequences of destitution, the consequences of maybe, maybe those people that control those kinds of industries and beatings and abuse, outcast. No one wanted this woman around, so she lived with the loneliness and isolation of it. And she is at the end of her sanity with this kind of life. Guilt has simply become, in her life, too great to bear. Her hopelessness has flooded her soul completely. And she searches to find out where Jesus is. And what is, what is amazing is that when she finds out that he's at the house of the local official Pharisee, the most pious man in town, it doesn't stop or mitigate her drive to see Jesus. Verse 37, standing behind him at his feet. This is shocking. She doesn't address the host. 
She doesn't seem to sheepishly ask Jesus if she can come in or get permission. She doesn't wait to check his response. She might have even pushed her way past some house servant or two to get into this particular chamber. She comes into the darkness in the corners and comes out of the shadows and stands where he is sitting, behind at his feet. He is lounged out, eating his meal, and she comes to where his feet are. And it doesn't take long for her to begin sobbing. That's the word in the text for weeping. Verse 38 Weeping. This is loud sobbing. She drops to her knees and then down with her face to the ground. Verse 37, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And so she began to wet his feet with her tears, kept wiping them with the hair of her head kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. So she not only searched him out, she not only is undaunted by the environment, she comes into this place and her sacrifice is on her heart. She's at the end of it. She can no longer stand who she is. She has heard him teach, no doubt, or what he has taught. She cannot stand herself. She sees it, beloved. She sees what every sinner must see when they come to God. People come to the gospel message with a variety of conditions of the heart. A variety. But unless they actually come to the place where they are at the end of themselves, Jesus said in the ninth chapter and the 14th chapter of Luke, unless you are willing to die to self and take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And she is willing to sacrifice much. I mean, she comes with perfume. This is muron. The distinction is clearly made here later with the regular oil, verse 46. She has sacrificed on the altar of her personal comfort, her wages. Could have been any one of a number of costly fragrances. By contrast to the everyday lotions that they used, which are mentioned later in the text, this is probably something like uh, frankincense or myrrh. Myrrh was the most costly and the most rare. Everyday oil was kept not in alabaster flasks and things like that, but was kept in the everyday pottery around the house, the place you would keep any lotion sitting there so that in the arid culture people came in and you wanted to refresh them with lotions and oils. Myrrh, by the way, was, as I said, much more rare. And so if we calculate back in the ancient times the ways they used to use it and some of the ancient values, it's actually staggering. Around the first and second century, if we just translate that into American money, I don't have the details in front of me, but I went and read them again and again thinking, well, what are we dealing with here? Well, many estimate that at the time, 
if you translate it into modern money, frankincense was about $500 a pound, and myrrh went for about $4,000 a pound. So this is collected over a period of time with a woman like this, and maybe she had access to a lot of money in the kind of criminal company she kept. It's a big sacrifice. And she has laid everything on the altar of her reputation. She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head. Her dignity is gone. This is a disgrace for a woman. A low-level servant in the house would take water and a towel and a basin and they would wipe and clean the feet and then put oil on them, just the everyday oil. They would use towels. It was the low-level servant. This is a woman... Her hair is her glory and her dignity, and she's using it as the towel. Her tears are the water, and she's wiping dirty, dusty, chapped feet from a day's walking. No reputation, no dignity. She came desperately. She has no sense of self-preservation. She is loudly sobbing. And in a room like that, there would have been such contempt for her immediately, and she brings, she's willing to bring the full contempt of the most pious Pharisee down upon her head just to seek forgiveness from Jesus and to pay him homage. So she's humble, she's reverent, she's penitent. Everything Jesus loves. How does Jesus respond? Well, he's silent. That's his response. He's silent. He's accepting it as worship that's genuine, and he's saying nothing. He's a rabbi. He claims to be a prophet. People think he's a prophet. And he's silently accepting this. This is what he loves. He loves somebody that comes like this. He absolutely loves it when a guilty sinner is at the end of everything and comes to him. If you have ever thought that Jesus would not forgive a sin you've committed, read it, look at it. A humble heart, broken at the end. You know what that's like if you're here and you're saved and you know what that's like when you've seen it in somebody else they just get to the end it's over I don't want this life anymore the Lord loves that he's silent he's gracious no public rebuke he accepts her repentance look at look at Simon verse 39 when he saw it He said to himself, he's mumbling to himself, if he were a prophet. See, now I know he's not a prophet. If he were a prophet, he would know that this woman shouldn't be touching him. It's defiling. This is terrible. He's no prophet. He's too, if he were holy, he would see that. He would distance himself. He'd run from the sinner like we do because we are pious, we are holy, we're clean in and of ourselves, and we're not about to let some low-account human being defile our holiness. But Jesus, he allows that. He's no prophet. I will pay him no attention. 
Jesus knows his thoughts. Verse 40, Jesus answered and said to him, that must have been a bit of a shock. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. There's a respectful pretense. Say it, uh, one who teaches. Say it, one who's respected. Say it, oh, respected one. Speak it. I'm ready. I'm willing. I want to learn. Have you ever had somebody like that? Oh, I want to to hear this preaching. I want to study this Bible. It says you're a sinner. Really? Come on. Jesus, teach me. So Jesus just says very quickly, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Yeah, one owes a lot, one owes a little. And when they both were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both the debt. That's the implication, their debt, what they owed. So which of them is going to love him more? Simon probably sitting up, getting his best, you know, look, well, I suppose, this is how they talk back and forth with one another, I suppose. We're, we're conversing as equal rabbis. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Man, you can just hear the air going into his lungs. Of course. I, of course. Now, this is the perfect place to go, verse 44. This is absolutely perfect. Jesus doesn't talk about Simon in any kind of an attitude. He just says, let me show you something. Let me show you how I've already been treated right here in this very room before I even got to the food. You see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. Listen, beloved, that was customary for the average Joe coming in the door. Everyone got lotion for your skin, your dry skin. Everybody got your feet washed by the servant of the house to wipe them clean and then put lotion on. It was, nobody wanted you in the, in the room with the food if you smelled bad and your foot was cracked with bloody cracks and Dust was flying off your clothes. And all. No, no, no. You went into a, the entryway with refreshment and the servants took care of you and put lotion on your hands and your feet and anointed your hair with oil to get the dust from flying around and fragrances were put there. This is done with every guest, let alone a respected rabbi. He says, you didn't even do what everybody gets. Yet she... She has wet my feet, not with the water, but with her tears and wiped them with her hair. In other words, she's doing the disgraceful thing your servants wouldn't even do because you'd already told them about me or you refused for them to do it. And then the custom, the, the custom of gracious cordiality to a guest. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss. Everybody got that. Especially a respected person. Kiss the hand, you kiss the cheek, you kiss the forehead. Welcome to my dwelling. Welcome to my home. Somebody comes into your house, you don't say, ah, come on in, we're in the back. I mean, you might do that with family, but <laughs> I come over to your house, you're not going to do that. Doc Zimmick comes there, you're not going to say, hey, Doc, come on out back. You can pick up some of these branches, get them out of the way so we can have a nice time. You don't tell him to do that. You clean up the yard, and when he comes to the door, you open the door, you grab him, you hug him, and you say, welcome to our home. 
That's what even we do. That's what they did back then. He says, you didn't even do that. But since the time I came in, she, I mean, this must have happened right when they laid down, took a couple of pieces of food, she bursts in, there it is. She hasn't stopped sobbing and kissing my feet. And you didn't even give me the customary anointing with the regular oil, but she has busted this alabaster vial of perfume and she has anointed my feet with all of it and the fragrance is filling the room. For that very reason, by that illustration, here's the point, Simon. Her sins, which are obvious, there are many, have been forgiven. Do you know how I know, Simon? Do you know how I know the guilt is lifting? Do you know how I know she's refreshed? Do you know how I know peace is coming to her heart? Do you know how I know that? Because she's seeking a savior. She's being drawn in true contrition. She's admitting all of her sin. All of it. And so her sins, which are obviously many, and she has bypassed all of the reputation. She has bypassed all of the money for her livelihood, which she's earned from that garbage kind of life. She's just bypassed all of it and come right in here and done this. I know she's repentant. And so she is pardoned because that's how someone comes. They come ready to love Christ and not themselves. They come ready to deny themselves and embrace Christ. That's how they come. Wherefore she loved much. Literally in the text, that's why she loves much. Because she's been forgiven. She knows how much she's been forgiven. She can't believe she's been forgiven. She thought she couldn't be forgiven. And he accepts her repentance. But, yeah, he who's forgiven little loves little. What a contrast. The custom of cleansing, you were indifferent. She was self-humiliating for my sake. The customary greeting, you were distant, Barely cordial. She showed continual gratitude in the most self-demeaning way. Bestowing honor, you were full of contempt. She's all about homage. He said to her, this is so tender, your sins have been forgiven. People reclining at the table are saying, what? Who is this man? Man, you can just hear the pointedness. Who is this man who even forgives sins? Or literally, who is this one who would dare to say they forgive sins? He didn't even pay attention to that, apparently. Verse 50, he said to the woman again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We have nothing else. Luke records nothing else. I wish he'd have followed her outside. I wish somebody had followed. I want to see what happens next because peace has filled her heart. The hopelessness, overwhelmed with hope. The restless turmoil and guilt and just the trashy way she knew She'd lived suddenly clean. The polluted mind and heart 
suddenly she can, she can find refreshment coming in. She looked into the eyes of a Savior who reached out to her and said, you're forgiven totally and utterly. All your sins, past, present, and future, doesn't matter what you've been, what you've done, you're totally forgiven. And now go in reconciliation. Luke doesn't record what Simon said after that. It's obvious the people around Simon, servants in his house, others at the table, Simon himself, all they could think of was, you know, this guy, where does he come off? He, he must, he's arrogant. Look what he's claiming. They didn't pay any attention to the lesson that is taught in the life of this woman. And the lesson is this, beloved. Never take offense at Jesus. She took offense at herself and found a savior. Simon takes offense at Jesus and remains in his sin. No peace, no hope, no forgiveness. Listen, if you are relying on you, I don't care what your experience has been. I don't care what sin background you came from. I don't care how badly you were hurt by a church. I don't care what you think of religion. I don't care what you up to this point, up to this very service, have thought about the Christians around you. If you go to face the gospel with just you, you will never hear these words from Christ. You're forgiven. Go in peace. You can never. But if you come like she did, I search for Christ, I want hope in Christ, I see my sin. You say, but pastor, I've gone to church all my life. My parents are churchgoers. My grandparents were churchgoers. My great-grandfather started the church we grew up in. I grew up in church. I am somebody. I do good things. I'm not her. If that's you today, you will never hear these words from Christ. Go in peace, you're forgiven, never. You gotta come and say, like she did, reputation aside, disgrace aside, I am a disgrace before God and I plead for his mercy and I just say, is there any forgiveness for me? If there's forgiveness for me, a person like me, man, I, I want that. That's what Luke illustrates you say well how do I know pastor look at, look at whether you love Christ how do you know how much do you love Christ you say well I'm already a Christian I know that I am in Christ yes but how much do you love him do you know what that indicates how much you believe you've been forgiven the more you've been a Christian, the longer you've studied the word of God, the more you've seen the glories of Christ in his word, the more you've had the guilt lifted, the more you see power over sin, the more you know what you've been forgiven. And you can't help but love Christ and be devoted to him more and more each day, not perfectly. It is not a perfection in your life. It is not even faithful in certain seasons, but you know it is the direction of your life and it is the heart of your soul and inner life to love him. Because you don't deserve his forgiveness. I don't deserve his forgiveness. You want to measure whether you understand what happened in your conversion? 
How much do you love Christ? How much do you throw off reputation to have his reputation? How much do you throw off the world to have his promises? How much do you throw off sin to have his goodness and his purity and his holiness? That's how you know. But he who is forgiven little, he who doesn't think he needs to be forgiven, he who doesn't think he's a sinner, he who maybe thinks he's never sinned, doesn't love Christ. Doesn't need to. I got this. I'll face God on my own. So they say. Beloved, don't leave here without checking your love for Christ by how much you know you've been forgiven. And don't leave here if you're outside of Christ without throwing it all aside and rushing to him in this very hour. Lord, thank you for this illustration, this precious woman. I can't wait to meet her. I want to know what she did for the gospel after this incident. I want to know how you used her testimony with friends and family and maybe even the the people who partnered with her in the evil system she was a part of. She must have had such a powerful testimony of your grace and your love in a city that was obviously filled with either self-righteous people or full of sinners. No hope. Thank you for saving her, Lord. Thank you for the way she came. It teaches us how to come. Thank you for the contrast between she and Simon. It shows the nature of pride. Lord, use this illustration in the lives of those in this room. And may we always come to you and and ask how we're doing in our love for you. Because you've said if we know how much we've been forgiven, if we learn how much we've been forgiven, if we see our sin rightly, we can't help but want to rush to you and say, Lord, how can we love you more? How can we pursue you in a greater way? How can we throw off self more violently and serve you more faithfully? Give us your grace to live what we have heard today. For your glory's sake, amen.